0: I did see items in the paper every once in a while that they were considering moving to Minneapolis. I really didn't think it would ever happen. And then my father sent me this letter.
1: At a meeting of our board today, they voted uh, permission for us to transfer the New York Giants franchise to San Francisco.
2: Does that mean you will definitely do it? That's
1: right.
0: I said, I'm never going to see these guys play again. This is crazy. Why why would they leave? I read
1: the New York Times account, and I had to go out for a long walk and just trying to comprehend how all this had happened. It was a shock.
3: A crowd in center field with the Stay Team Stay banner. We were calling out Stay Team Stay. It was sad. There was genuine sadness.
4: I told my parents, they're not going to stay out in California. The fog would be too much for them. And I guess in about a year, a year and a half, it
5: kind of settled in on me that they weren't coming back. Well, well, it was was a death knell. I mean, it's like losing the war. What are we going to do now?
0: I really felt like it was an affront to me as a fan that I was not gonna be able to see them play anymore. It bothered me that I couldn't do something to stop it from happening. I
6: was too far away. When a team leaves its city, it creates ripples. Across the distance of the move, across the fans left behind, and across time. In 1957, the New York Giants, along with the Brooklyn Dodgers, parted the Big Apple for the West Coast and made Major League Baseball a truly national pastime. But for those that lost their heroes, the move was unthinkable. In the cradle of baseball, after unprecedented success, there were no more Giants. This is The Narrative. I'm Harry Sportac. Chapter 1. New York's Gilded Age of Baseball.
2: back to bring you the again as they take on the New York Giants the second of three
6: New York was the
1: center of the baseball world. The Yankees won the pennant and the World Series in 47, 49, 50, 51, 52, 53. 55 56 and 57
2: five world series in a row for casey stengel and his american league whiz bang
1: the dodgers were in the world series against the yankees in 47 49 52 53 55. the brooklyn dodgers have won their first world series in 55 years and the giants were in the world series 51
6: and 54.
2: The jubilant Giants stood alone, baseball champions of the world.
6: In the decade between 1947 and 1957, a New York baseball team was in the World Series every year except one, and they won eight titles. Three teams divided the city's affections, with the Yankees taking the Bronx, the Giants in Manhattan, and the Dodgers representing Brooklyn. 111 years earlier, New Yorkers played the first baseball game, And since then, it was all the city could talk about.
7: Well, you came home from school and you watched baseball every day. Somebody was on either Channel 9, the Dodgers, or Channel 11, the Giants and Yankees. Quickly, we go right down to the playing field. Brooklyn owned the Dodgers. The Yankees were more of the the bourgeois team, you know, the upper middle class, and the Giants were kind of the leftovers. Oh, we argued all the time, all the time, hanging out in the candy store on the corner. You, know, you looked at the box score on the next day, and then you argued. This one did that.
6: This one did that. This one did nothing. That's Steve Rothschild, a lifelong Giants fan. Arguments over who had the best squad or which fans were the most rabid echoed through subway stations, clanged around diners, and wafted out open windows throughout the city. But there was one argument that really captured the imagination of New Yorkers. It was music to their ears, especially
8: Willie,
7: Mickey. And the Duke. Um, I grew up with Terry Cashman. You know that name. He did the Willie, Mickey, and the duke song.
8: Hank Aaron was beginning.
7: If you were a Giant fan, you were Willie Mays. If you were a Yankee fan, you were Mickey Mantle. And then the Dodger fans were the Duke. If I had to choose one to start a team, it would be Mays. Mays did it all. And Mantle, of course, played hurt, and you know played drunk a lot of times. And Snyder was kind of the third, but he was a terrific clutch hitter at Duke. Snyder, a wonderful player. Yeah, they were the three, and they. Uh, of course, they followed the fourth one who was included, and that is Joe DiMaggio. You know, you could throw him in there, too, but it doesn't make the song rhyme. Willie, Mickey, and the Duke sounds good.
6: Mickey and the Duke. Three Hall of Fame center fielders filled the stadiums, but the fields themselves were attractions of a sort. Here's Peter McGowan, former San Francisco Giants owner.
1: They played in these magical ballparks. Ebbets Field was a great place to watch a game. Yankee Stadium, that is old Yankee Stadium, was a great place to watch a game. And the Polo Grounds was a was spectacular
6: place. Each field reflected the fans and teams that filled them. Yankee Stadium was cavernous, built to hold the multitude of fans that came to see Ruth hit home runs decades before. Ebbets Field was tight. A single block in Brooklyn that crammed 20,000 screaming fans right up against the players. And then there was the Polo Grounds.
7: And I still remember walking through the runway and seeing that grass and, you know, living in New York City, I'd never seen anything like that in person. It looked like a big
0: bathtub. Right field was like two hundred and fifty seven feet away. Left field was a little bit longer, not much. Center field was so far away that you couldn't possibly hit a ball to the to the clubhouse.
3: The clubhouse was in center field. You had to walk around, walk through the field or around the perimeter of the outfield to, to get into the clubhouse. And there were two staircases, one to the visitor side and one to the home team side. And it was a double deck stadium and you could lean over the wall and the right field was right below you. And I remember we used to give Carl Farello a hard time.
4: You felt closer than you generally felt in the baseball stadiums for the next 20 years.
0: It was almost rickety looking, even though the field was concrete.
4: There were lots of pillars, so not everybody had um, an unobstructed view to the game. I want to say the polo grounds held over 50,000 people. I think it did.
1: The the old-fashioned ballpark, which is the kind I like, you see this huge field of green grass and these white uniforms, and the Polo Grounds was a was spectacular place.
6: The Polo Grounds was a mecca of baseball, a stadium with a completely unique personality. However, as different as the stadiums and fan bases were, they did share one thing, a sense of community not found in baseball today. Current stars of New York baseball live in penthouses or in rich suburbs outside the city far away from the fields and the communities they represent. In the 40s and 50s, the players were part of the neighborhood.
8: Uh, I lived actually about five minutes from the ballpark. So we would just come right down the hill. I was on about 181st Street in uh, New York. It doesn't take long to go 30 some odd streets. Uh, So uh, we we were pretty
2: lucky.
6: That's Johnny Antonelli, former New York and San Francisco Giants pitcher. When he wasn't tossing 20-win seasons, Antonelli's life closely resembled his millions of New York neighbors. He, like most other ballplayers at the time, had a job in the offseason to supplement his professional ballplaying.
8: My first year after I signed I came home and I went to work for a company called the National Clothing Company and they put me in the boys department and uh, then I went to work for our uh, brewery called the Genesee Brewery. I never drank so uh, I, I couldn't say I drink Genesee beer so please drink it. Uh, I just couldn't say that because I wasn't a drinker nor a smoker nor did Willie Mays nor did Del Crandall. Del Crandall and I were called the Milkshake Twins, but that's what we drank. We drank
6: milkshakes. Willie Mays might not have been a milkshake boy, but he was a tab man. It's beautiful, to be.
9: beautiful.
6: The 1977 tab ad has Willie enjoying a soda and recreating a famous photo of himself playing stickball with kids in the Harlem streets. Not only were baseball stars working like the average fan but their proximity on and off the field led to a closeness with the people who came to their games.
10: Although some of the players today are great, I know them, but there was a certain warmth in 1957. We always waited for the players to come out after the game. They were very cordially stopped for photographs, autographs. I don't know whether that's possible today. haven't tried.
6: That's Mo Reznor, who attended Giants games at the Polo Grounds when he was a kid. Playing catch with outfielders between innings, Shagging balls and batting practice, fans from the 50s had real relationships with players, and the Polo Ground's unique structure led directly to fan player meetings. Here's Giants fan Larry Hans.
4: The fans that did sit in the bleachers got to talk to people going up the steps a lot for both teams. And I think it was common, they let you run on the field when the game was over in those days, too. I never did that, but uh, because I lived in New Jersey and was worried about getting to a bus, but the the New York residents, a lot of them would just rush onto the field and see if they could shake somebody's hand or whatever it was.
6: In a baseball craze city, fans knew all about their favorite players because it was like learning everything about your best friend. Take Giants fan Carmen Magazino and the Say Hey Kid.
3: What did I know much about Willie May, I knew when Willie May first came, he was like 0 for 21. I know his first home run was off Warren Spahn. I know he was despondent and sad and wanted to go back. We knew that he played stickball, and we played stickball. Everybody in the city, if you're a city kid, you played stickball. But I, Willie Mays, I knew everything about him. He came from Alabama. I knew he played for the Negro League. Uh, you, you, you knew that they didn't make a lot of money. The baseball players were close to you in that sense. And then you had the adversaries in the 50s. The advent of television and local, boys. And so we were enthralled with that too. Because now you could see these games almost every day. They were coming into your uh, house. Actually, you, you almost felt like the play. You knew the players. You knew you knew who they were. Basically, you almost felt like they were part of your family.
6: The teams were like family because, in large part, they were family-owned. Horace Stonum's Giants dynasty started with a doting father.
11: So his father was Charles Abraham Stonum. My great-grandfather did purchase the Giants for my grandfather and the family as an investment in 1919.
6: That's Jamie Rupert, Horace Stonum's granddaughter.
11: And he had told my grandfather when he was 16 what would he like most in the world and the Documented, and my grandfather said, I oh, would love to have the Giants. There were no other businesses that he had, so it really was the focus of his life.
6: Stoneham cared for the team as much when he was owner as when he was a fan and put his full attention into the Giants. He largely kept to himself and shied away from the press. But behind the scenes, Stoneham made strong, lasting relationships with his players.
9: One uh, thing about Stoneham that everybody talks about, and this includes all the players that I've interviewed, was his loyalty to his players. He, was, uh, he regarded them as family.
6: That's Rob Garrett, the author of Home Team, The Turbulent History of the San Francisco Giants.
9: And he, he went, once they were with the Giants, he, he felt that they were a part of his extended family and he wanted the best for all of them. There are lots of stories about Stoneham trading players and still keeping in touch with them, worrying about them, even helping them financially.
6: The team and Park were Horace Stoneham's only source of income. Single-party ownership like Stoneham's Giants and O'Malley's Dodgers came with its drawbacks too, making organizations more vulnerable to change and less financially stable. In a hyper-localized metropolis like New York, the modernizing forces that would eventually tear the teams from their town hit the city especially hard. Baseball was about to move from its golden age to the electronic age.
2: Now, let's all
8: play What My Life.
6: In the early 1940s, Americans with a consumer television set numbered in the tens of thousands. But in 1948, New York City alone had over 60,000 televisions. That number skyrocketed in the
11: 50s. Well, sir, I think I've got you. Did you hit your 31st home run today? Do you play center field? Are you saying, hey, Willie Mays?
6: Television's not only allowed for Willie Mays to come into fans' homes on fun game shows like What's My Line, but also on the baseball diamond.
2: And rookie Willie Mays ends his
9: batting slump with a bang. Would television, baseball on television, reduce fans coming to the game, or would it increase this? It, it was something that even the commissioner's office did, didn't know about. They they were really in the early stages. Both Stoneham and O'Malley had contracts with New York uh, TV and New York radio, and th- those contracts were sort of basic, and in fact, for Stoneham, in the short term, those TV contracts were helping him. He was managing a profit by this, a, a shrinking gate because of the TV contracts.
6: Having the games beamed directly into living rooms began to change the way baseball was consumed. In just four seasons, the Polo Grounds gate went from 1.1 million in the Giants World Series year of 1954 to just 600,000 in 1957. MLB attendance went down across the board from 1950 to 1954, and was only rejuvenated when the Boston Braves moved to Milwaukee and began regularly leading the league in attendance.
2: Since moving to Milwaukee in 1953, the Braves have captured one world championship, two National League pennants, and millions of fans.
6: Fans like Steve Rothschild were farther and farther apart in the stands.
7: I never remember it being a tough ticket. If you look at the attendance during the day, during during those seasons, they didn't drive, I think maybe a half a million people. So 77 into a half a million, is what, 8,000 8, a game, 7,000 a game. They didn't draw a lot. The Giants didn't draw. The
6: Dodgers continued to draw, but the Giants did not. If you decided you did want to go to the games in person, it may have been more unpleasant to get to the stadium than it had been. Here's Jerry Liebowitz. The other part of what I remember the most is uh, is the situation in
0: the neighborhood where we used to have to park the car and uh, there was all kinds of incidents with kids asking for money to watch the car. And if you didn't give them money, you might have a headlight missing uh, or something when you got back to your car. And it was pretty clear to most people that the neighborhood was getting progressively
6: dangerous. Fans wouldn't have to worry about the cars missing headlights if there was parking at the stadium. The polo grounds had a small lot for the players and had permission to use the Yankees' lot just across the river when the two teams weren't playing simultaneously. But generally, fans had to search the streets of New York to find parking. With more and more fans moving out of the city to the suburbs, parking would become an important part of getting butts in seats. But the biggest problem for the Giants was their cathedral of baseball. The polo grounds was in dire need of repair, and Horace Stoneham knew it before everyone else.
9: Stoneham realized in the latter part of 1955, that he was in trouble with his ballpark. The Polo Grounds, one of the storied places in all of baseball history, it was old. It was the oldest ballpark in the country in the National League, and Stoneham realized he was gonna to have to do something about fan you know, comfort. This was something that was gonna cut into his t- decreasing bottom line because the gate started to shift. So he began entertaining ways of uh, either finding a new stadium or what occurred to him, uh, it kept reoccurring to him, as, would he have to leave New York City?
6: Building or rebuilding a stadium in New York poses a number of problems. First, there's the process of obtaining the lands. Then, zoning and permissions. And then, there's the city's amusement tax, which took 5% off gate proceeds from team owners. But even if all that gets worked out, private owners like Stoneham and the Dodgers' Walter O'Malley needed to fund the project. And one man made sure they'd be funding it by themselves
2: the city's parks, LaGuardia appoints Table, Robert Moses, long time in state service.
9: Uh, and all of it had to do with the problem that everybody was running into, including the Dodgers at that time, with Ro- Robert Moses and the, the, the money that New York City had for various projects and redevelopment. The city was going through a lot of redevelopment in the 50s. The money for uh, baseball facilities was not high on the list, so they were constantly running into trouble.
6: There were schemes for keeping the Giants and Dodgers in NYC. A multi-purpose Brooklyn domed stadium that would feature a full grocery market Nice ice rink. A stadium on stilts in Manhattan for the Giants. But owners Stoneman and O'Malley knew there was another, cheaper, easier, and ultimately, more profitable way. Chapter 2. Giant steps
10: From above the clouds we approach one of the most beautiful spots on the Pacific. a city of romance and glamour. This is San Francisco. In
6: 1956, the city of San Francisco created a step-by-step brochure for potential MLB franchises looking to move or start their team in the city.
10: Through the turnstiles below pours a steady stream of hasty commuters and visitors, intent on work and pleasure.
6: Printed two-tone in giants black and orange and filled with thinly veiled jabs at New York City, it was clearly meant to reach the desk of Horace Stoneham, which it evidently did. On the first page, after the introduction, the heading reads, San Francisco has the money.
9: The city of San Francisco was was planning for a Major League Baseball team. San Francisco had passed a bond issue of $5 million for the sole purpose of attracting a Major League Baseball team to San Francisco.
6: Until the new stadium was built, The Giants would be playing in Seal Stadium, home of the San Francisco Seals of the Pacific Coast League. Now Ed's playing with Lefty O'Doul and the San Francisco Seals. MLB stopped at St. Louis, with the Cards being the farthest west team. But the PCL was a high-quality product that primed Western baseball fans. From
2: Seattle to San Diego, more than 1,700 miles apart, our splendid teams play.
9: The PCL was such a, a unique minor league that it was unclassified. They had the Seattle Rainiers, the Portland Beavers, the Sacramento Solons, the Oakland Oaks, the San Francisco Seals, the Hollywood Stars, the Los Angeles Angels, and the San Diego Padres. That was baseball on the West Coast. It was exciting. And I won't go through the litany of players, but you know that the DiMaggio's came out of the San Francisco Seals, Ted Williams, I mean, you know Gene Woodling and Ferris Fain. So the health of baseball on the West Coast was great, and the tradition was rich, and the rivalry and the quality of baseball was outstanding. It wasn't Major League.
6: The Pacific Coast League proved the West was ready for baseball. But even better was that owners wouldn't have to share markets. Of the 16 MLB teams in 1957, five were located in Chicago and New York. A bit earlier in the decade, Philadelphia, St. Louis, and Boston had two teams apiece as well. That's more than half the league sharing their city with on-field competitors. A geographically close league was important for travel, but that was about to change.
8: We never went further than St. Louis or Chicago or Milwaukee. That was as far as we went, so we did we traveled by train primarily, and in 1953 uh, we were the fir- we were I was with then the Milwaukee Braves and we were the first team to fly and we flew from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. And everybody was scared to death because here's the whole team on one plane, you know, what's going on here? And that was the first flight that uh, was ever taken. Of course, then when the, when the West Coast got into the, into the game, we had to fly.
6: Planes took care of moving the players, but the fans needed to be able to reach the stadium too, and ever increasingly, in cars. To truly draw the potential ticket sales from the Western fan base, baseball teams would have to allow for the new suburban family to drive to the game. The West provided the all-important parking lot.
9: So when George Christopher got involved, he became mayor in 1956. But Christopher assured him that not only would he have a new stadium, there would be parking for 12,000 automobiles. And he uh, he, he was very clear about this to Stoneham, that Stoneham would have a chance to sort of design, help design the stadium, and it would be ready for the Giants in almost two years after they came
6: the city of San Francisco offered their prospective MLB team the opportunity for another $3 million just to build parking. And as far as the scary new medium of TV was concerned, the West had an answer for that, too.
9: Uh, the third party that pushed for Stoneham to come to San Francisco was a man called Matthew Fox, who was president of the futuristic-sounding company called Skyatron Electronics. This was a cable TV company, before its time. They were going to wire the city of San Francisco and, by the way, the city of Los Angeles. And they were offering both Stoneham and O'Malley contracts for pay TV. People would be subscribing to home and away games, and they could have it right in their home. And not only was, was Fox influential in, in, in weaving this narrative, but he gave Stoneham an escrow fee deposited in a bank as part of the down payment if he would come to San Francisco.
6: Where New York put the brakes on new stadiums, California greased the skids. Where New York meant sharing your fan base with two other franchises, the West was wide open. Where New York offered no parking and sketchy TV rights, San Francisco offered massive asphalt lots and subscription-based broadcasts. It's not surprising that Stoneham would be interested. Slowly but surely, the Giants began inching west. And it started in spring training.
11: Bringing spring training from Florida to Arizona, the impetus for doing that was because of the Jim Crow laws in Florida. And he knew that with the amount of players coming from diverse backgrounds, they would never be welcome in Florida. So along with Bill Beck, they went and established Baseball in Arizona. When you look at that billion-dollar market now that is spring training in Arizona, baseball coming west was already in his blood. And he did say to me, because I did ask him, I said, whose idea was it to move west? And he said to me, Walter said to me, Horace, since this was your idea, you pick which city you want. And my grandfather said, well, I'll take San Francisco because I don't want to be with all those crazy people in L.A.
6: While Stoneman made the move to protect his star players from the Jim Crow realities of Florida, Arizona made for an initial foray out west. Stoneman had also worked in copper mining near San Francisco earlier in his life, and had established connections there. For his part, Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley also began making inroads in the west, ending his 1955 World Series tour of Japan by playing exhibition games in Los Angeles. Stoneman and O'Malley knew they were moving, but nobody else did, including the players like the Giants' Daryl Spencer. I don't
2: remember exact <clears throat> the exact date, but there was a lot of rumors flying. I, I don't think most of us players ever realized they'd move. I mean, it was just the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers, and you just didn't think that would ever change. But, my gosh, uh, O'Malley goes to L.A., they give him everything. They give him this, all that land
5: mm-hmm.
2: and promise the stadium and everything, and I don't think the Giants got such a great deal, but...
4: They certainly
1: the attendance was going down at the Polo ground, and it was strictly a money thing. Stoneham, do you have any statement to make to the Giants fans of New York? Oh, we're very sorry that we're leaving here, and actually, I'm very sentimental about the Giants and about New York City. But uh, conditions were such that. Uh, our move would have to be immediately, otherwise we'd probably not be able to move to another city under such good conditions.
6: On August 19, 1957, Horace Stoneham announced to flashing cameras and rolling film that he was moving the New York Giants to San Francisco. Permission had been granted by the MLB back in May of that year for the Giants and Dodgers to move jointly but the Dodgers would wait another six weeks before making their announcement. Moreover, it would be a third-tier team official reading a mimeograph statement from owner Walter O'Malley, who had already bolted for LA. It was official. The New York Giants were now the San Francisco Giants, but there was still a season to be finished at the Polo Grounds.
2: They're just pouring foul mail, and this is a scene you'll never forget.
6: On a sunny September 29th, at 2.35 p.m., the New York Giants began their last game at the Polo Grounds. There were ceremonies before the game, with various old-timers on hand to remember and celebrate the team's illustrious history.
2: I'm standing right under a very impressive picture, incidentally, of the 1944
6: Giants. A local kid named Mo Reznor hopped the fence of the Giants' final game. He wasn't a fan of the Giants. He rooted for the Cubs. But he brought a camera and captured the only footage of the Giants' last game in New York City.
10: Apparently I was the only one who didn't realize that it was the last game in the history of the New York Giants. It's a good thing I had the movie camera because nobody else had it. The New York Times, uh, Herald Tribune, Daily News, Daily Mirror, you name it, they were there taking photos, but not movies. I took 40 minutes and I put it away for a half a century.
6: The game was nothing special. The Pittsburgh Pirates put the whooping on the Giants, 9 to 1. The footage is spectacular, though, documenting not only the game action, but also the architecture of the polo grounds and the ceremonies beforehand. But the thing the video really shows, more than men playing a game, is the atmosphere as a city says goodbye to its team. Close-ups of the fans still show people cupping their hands and calling, Let's go, Willie!" But once the play is over, their expressions slip back into a dour stupor somewhere between sadness and disbelief. Then, with a whimper and a Dusty road's ground out, the game was over. As you can see,
2: the fans putting on this wonderful demonstration that uh, they want the Giants to stay in New York.
3: After the game, he went out of the bleachers and onto the field. Somebody said it was a mob. I, I wouldn't call it a mob, but everybody was all over the field. Uh, who's digging up home plate, who's digging up the pitchers mound. Um, but we, but a, a crowd did go at the, in, in center field with the Stay Team Stay banner that we had in the bleachers, holding it up to the clubhouse, and we were calling out Stay Team Stay. I don't know if it was anger, it was just a, an outlet of emotion, pure emotion.
6: Elsewhere in the polo grounds, the last bat boy for the New York Giants and son of the team's longtime clubhouse manager, Eddie Logan Jr., looked on as the fans swarmed the field.
5: Before the last out, I'm in the dugout with Doc Bowman and the team, and here's going to come the last out, and Doc says to me, he says, okay, take off your hat and hold on to me, because we're going to run to the clubhouse. You had to run the entire length of, you know, from home plate all the way out to dead center, then up the steps. He says, the fans are going to go nuts, and the first thing they're going to do is grab your hat. So hold on to it and uh, hold on to me and, and we'll get there. So sure enough, last out, place goes crazy. All the fans jump out of the stands and they're, they're ripping across the field and they're ripping up the bases and ripping up home plate and ripping up the stands. And we get, we get there and up the steps and they, they, they came across the field, hundreds of them and they're chanting, not a happy crew. And that's, that's covered in the, uh, in the press.
6: Radio stations captured some of the fans anguished cries and talked right over them before interviewing some of the players and old timers. They were diplomatic about the move.
2: It's very hard coming back uh, to see the Giants leave town and go out to Frisco but I'm sure something that
6: something has to be done. And back in the dugout, Eddie Logan's father was photographed looking completely bereft. The photo would become a symbolic representation of the Giants emotions.
5: Well, it was it was a death knell. I mean, it's like losing the war. Uh, what are we going to do now? You know, the papers really uh, picked that up. And they, uh, if I can send you that picture, I'll find it. My dad's sitting there in the clubhouse on, uh, with his kind of like the thinker, you know, with his fist on his, his chin. And they call it the sad sack because, you know, he was allegedly sad to be moving to San Francisco, although he wasn't. That's another story. But they made out like it was. And to me, it was that's, I mean, it was just the end of, of
6: my youth. When the gate was counted, only 11,606 fans came to the New York Giants' wake, as the New York Daily News described it. The Giants had left, but the fans stayed behind.
1: Ed and now, ladies and gentlemen, I know that
2: you can see the folks out there uh, storming the clubhouse, so what we would like to do is to give you a final view also of the grandstand. same old springtime stand for the Giants who hope their new San Francisco tag will bring a change
6: of luck. The 1958 season kicked off for the now San Francisco Giants at home in Seal Stadium against their former crosstown rivals, now cross-state rivals, the Los Angeles Dodgers.
2: It's always a hot time whenever these two clubs uh, tangle anyway, huh?
6: Thousands of fans in New York still wanted to support their team. I mean, no self-respecting Giants fan would jump on the Yankees bandwagon. Take Peter McGowan's word. If you check back
1: on the attendance for 1958, which was the first year that uh, the Yankees had all of New York to themselves, and once again they were in the World Series, do you think their attendance went up with one team in New York instead of three, or went down? If you'll check your numbers, you'll see it went down. I think the answer to that is very simple. It shows how dismayed and saddened so many people were. If if they're gonna take my Dodgers and my Giants away, I'm not transferring my loyalties. And in those days, if you liked the Yankees, you hated the Dodgers and the Giants. If you liked the Dodgers, you hated the Giants and the Yankees. If you liked the Giants, you hated the Dodgers and the Yankees.
6: So New York Giants fans largely stayed Giants fans, even though their team was 3,000 miles away one man may have single-handedly carried fandoms across the country on his back.
10: Say hey, say who, say Willie, that giant kid is great.
7: I wasn't going to change my allegiance, and basically because of Mays. And you'll ask a lot of giant fans if will tell you the same thing.
2: Smiling Willie has been called one of the greatest natural hitters to come down the pike in decades.
7: First of all, Willie, we're
2: in love with Willie Mays. He can steal second against the best of pitchers. I, I'd
8: say the number one reason was, was Willie Mays.
2: When he's on patrol, watch out. He never drops anything but his cap. They loved Mays, and they stayed with the team. He opened the 1961 season by becoming one of nine men to hit four homers in one game.
7: As long as he was still there, we were, you know, we kept on his giant. But a lot of people dropped off when he retired, when they traded him back to the Mets. They lost some of their fan base, but up until then, A lot of the Giants fans stayed on.
2: No one deserves it more.
6: Willie Mays had some of his best years in San Francisco, hitting a career high in home runs and taking the Giants to the World Series in 1962. Ironically, against the Yankees. But that meant fans had to find a way to see Mays dazzle on the diamond. In a time before ESPN and national TV broadcast, really before the highlight, it was harder to follow the team.
4: I think for me, my crazy fanship got more exaggerated after they left New York, because it was harder to stay in touch with the Giants when they were not a New York team anymore. The first four years, a sportscaster from Philadelphia named Les Kyder would recreate the Giant games on radio on about a 20 or 30 minute tape delay. So you could listen to all the Giant games.
2: It's swung on, there's a high, lazy fly, hit the ball off the handle. It's going into straightaway center field, and there's a man maze waiting with his basket.
4: I think he was reading a a teletype, and he was recreating the game as if he was sitting there live, and he had bat sounds and crowd sounds and colloquial expressions like all the announcers today do, and it made the game very exciting, and it took away some of the uh, melancholy of, okay, the Giants are on the West Coast, and I'll, I'll never see them play.
6: The games were still played late for the East Coast. Night games would get over in the wee hours of the morning, and TV broadcasts were limited to when the Giants played teams that just happened to have a deal with the local broadcasters. Newspapers still had the box scores, but sometimes they were incomplete.
8: The newspapers you would get the next day, and it would say, like, you know, uh, San Diego at San Francisco, and then parentheses end, meaning night, so nobody, nobody in the newspaper would report the score. It was ended too late.
6: That's Gary Mitz he became a Giants fan 12 years after the team had gone west. He supported the Giants because his dad supported the Giants since before they left New York. Despite the difficulty in following a team a country away, Giants fans keep on rooting to this day. Chapter Three, 60 years and 3,000 miles. In the 60 years since the Giants left New York, it has become much easier to follow the team from afar. Fans can watch every game on TV, log on to the internet and check box scores and watch highlights in real time, and there's an ever-expanding catalog of merchandise to show your colors. The only thing that gets harder with time is finding more fans. The ones that are still around have grouped together into the New York Giants Preservation Society, headed by Gary Mintz.
8: I'm, I'm sort of like the caretaker, but I, I, you know, I know more about the San Francisco Giants than the New York Giants. A lot of the guys in the group know more about New York because they were here. It's a great feeling, especially you know when they're when they're doing well, uh, to see the smiles on these faces, especially the New York Giant fans who have remained loyal, and there there are so many
10: of us.
6: New Yorkers never lost their love for the team. But San Fran wanted to keep their team separate. For more than 50 years, the Giants hadn't won a World Series by the Bay. And resented the team's five championships in the Big Apple. That all changed in 2010.
10: Struck him out! And for the first time
2: since 1954, the Giants are world champions!
6: Now with their own championship, San Francisco seems ready to share again and even flew the World Series trophy to Manhattan.
3: So many Giants fans in Manhattan, it's crazy. Oh, you better believe it. Different people getting the honor of walking the trophy around, showing it to the fans on the streets of Manhattan.
1: Major League Baseball is here shooting the affair.
6: The World Series may have nudged San Francisco into fully embracing their NY heritage, but Peter McGowan had been steering the team back to its roots since he took over as an owner.
1: The San Francisco Giants would have nothing to do with New York. There was no connection between the two franchises until I came in and I worked with these New York Giants Historical Society people. We've invited these New Yorkers to come out to San Francisco and see what we've done with our ballpark and how we've displayed uh, all these old New York Giants people. And gradually, sort of year by year, as we made these efforts to connect New York fans with the San Francisco Giants, it worked.
6: But McGowan originally became the owner of the Giants not to revive New York team history, but to stop history from repeating itself. He had to stop the team from skipping town. Again.
1: I'm the guy that bought the team in 1992 when it was headed for Florida. One of the reasons why um, I was so determined to prevent the team from moving to Florida is that I saw the New York Giants move out of New York. And then I saw the whole thing happening again in 1992.
6: The situation wasn't exactly the same as 1957. TV wasn't sapping attendance. There was ample parking. And there weren't goldmine markets anywhere in the country just waiting for a team. But the core of the problem, the driving force behind the pressure to move, hadn't changed in nearly half a century.
1: What caused them to fail in New York caused them to be successful in San Francisco. And that was the absence of a modern ballpark in New York and the presence of a, not just a modern ballpark, but a beautifully designed, old-fashioned, park that people just love to go to, but that was not the case with Candlestick.
6: Candlestick was a bad ballpark. It was foggy, cold, windy, and took points off the batting average of any player to step foot within its walls. Johnny Antonelli earned the nickname Windy there.
8: When we went to the Candlestick, you know, at 10 o'clock in the morning, it was gorgeous there. But by 1, one thirty in the afternoon, the flags would be limp. And before you know it, they were at 90 degrees, fl- fluttering. And we were fighting for the pennant, and, uh, and I had a 3-to-1 lead. Uh, and there were two men on base, and their second baseman, who probably hit two home runs in his lifetime, uh, hit a ball that uh, it blew there pretty hard. Darrell Spencer was playing shortstop. He started back like a shortstop would. I've got it, I've got it. Jackie Brandt was playing left field, and he said, I've got it, I've got it, and they both stopped, and the ball blew over the fence for a home run. It was just very difficult to play ball there.
6: Just like the dilapidated Polo Grounds, or tiny Ebbets Field, the flaws in Candlestick Park were forcing the team to look elsewhere. But the Giants had one option, not truly open to single-party owners like Horace Stoneham and Walter O'Malley. Private funding.
1: We knew, to be successful, we had to build a new ballpark because Candlestick was terrible. And when we applied for membership for our group to be approved, we had to come up with a convincing plan that unlike the previous owner, Mr. Lurie, who tried four times to get the public to build a stadium for him, we had to do it by ourselves. And uh, we did. And then we went on to uh, build our privately financed stadium AT&T Park.
8: Hey, it's opening day at the new downtown ballpark. Here I am, beer in hand, great new club seat, ready for a ball game. What a view! Hey, Matt, let's go!
6: The public funding to build a ballpark that Robert Moses denied the New York Giants eventually did get used to build a stadium. Just not in Manhattan or Brooklyn. As part of the construction for the 1964 World's Fair, a half-billion-dollar pet project that lost the city millions, Moses snuck in the money to finance a ballpark that would end up being called Shea Stadium. A new Queens-based team, the New York Metropolitans, would attempt to fill the National League hole left in New York. It took some time to win over the former Giants and Dodger fans.
3: The Mets played in the Polo Grounds. That's the full circle there, right? And when the Giants came back, I would tell you, 55,000 people, if not more than that, packed the stadium at least two to three hours before, and we just wanted to see them come down the steps. Now, they were coming down the visitor side of, the, of those steps in uh, center field there. The love affair with them was obviously still there in New York,
6: you know, even though you had the Mets. Just like when the Giants moved west, a singular baseball personality helped ease the transition to the Mets. In 1972, Willie Mays returned to New York, as Horace Stoneham did right by the legend and the city one last time.
11: It had come to a time where the economics of baseball and the realities of the Giants' financial situation were were getting to be quite stark, quite honestly. And so the decision had to be made and uh, Willie was traded to the Mets. So because Pop had worked so closely with Mrs. Payson also over the years, and they had a friendship. It really was a very personal effort to have Willie go back to New York, and even though not as a giant, but again, the respect of being able to pay a player what he deserved, and and unfortunately, have to own up to the fact that, that Pop couldn't do that was a very difficult decision.
6: Back in Manhattan, after housing the Mets during the 62 and 63 seasons while Flushing was under construction, the Polo Grounds had been demolished in 1964. Three public housing apartment buildings, called the Polo Grounds Towers, were erected where the park once stood. The problems created by Robert Moses's expressway projects and amusement taxes during the Giants' days at the Polo Grounds continue to haunt Coogan's Bluff today. The signs for the towers have a rendering of the field on them, but many are faded or obscured by graffiti. But there is some art that's trying to bring the glory days of the stadium back to this state housing.
12: Hi, my name is Demetrius Felder. I'm a freelance mural artist for Groundswell. The mural is located off of 155th Street in Harlem. It's on Building 1 in the Polo Grounds Towers. Even the older residents don't know much about the Giants. When we were interviewing a lot of the residents of the Polo Grounds, no one in particular spoke about uh, the actual stadium. They were more focused on the current, relatively current affairs. Some knew about it, right? but really, a lot of the people that we talked to were, were largely African American and didn't come into the polo grounds until, like, the very cusp of it, you know, being built as as a housing project.
6: The mural depicts the polo grounds and two ball players, one in close up one further away, at the very end of a powerful swing. In purples, oranges, blacks, and blues, you can see and almost hear the crack of the ball off number 24's bat. It's beautiful for sure, but it's also informative, and more importantly, transformative.
12: There's a lot of issues with the polar grounds, right, and its direction in the future, but I think that it's also very important that they're aware of like this legacy that preceded it. I really want people to realize that that the Polo Grounds sits on a great legacy, right, whether it be its past, right, and, and the stadium, or its future. There's been so many amazing, amazing athletes that have come out of that particular area, right, and that the figures themselves in the murals are, are larger than life, right, they're outside of human scale and that's because they are avatars for aspirations and the idea is that that you should be able to project yourself right into the future project yourself into your dreams as large and as vivid as these figures are painted on the wall
8: Something that, uh, that goes right along with the, the words New
10: York City.
2: The fans have all come right out to the center field entrance to the polo grounds and are standing there yelling, stay team, state!" And I know all the fans here in New York, they don't want to see the Giants leave. I feel terrible seeing them leave. Well, I think you're just voicing the sentiments of uh, most of us, and particularly those fans who are
11: It's the right decision to move out of New York.
9: Yes, Stoneham was prospering. He had no doubts about the move. He, he, he never once regretted it. He knew the bottom line
10: was secure. But I'll tell you, from a business standpoint, Horace Stoneham did the right thing. They did the right thing.
6: The Giants are in San Francisco. They have been for 60 years. But the long shadow they cast after leaving New York still touches the city, the fans, and Major League Baseball itself.
2: To the top,
6: Thanks this week, go out to the New York Giants Preservation Society. Gary Mintz, Larry Hans, Jerry Liebowitz, Carmine Magazino, Steven Rothschild, Eddie Logan Jr., Jamie Rupert, Rob Garrett, Mo Reznor, Demetrius Felder, Johnny Antonelli, and Peter McGowan. I'd like to especially thank the Sabre Oral History Committee for the interview with Daryl Spencer, the Baseball Hall of Fame for their help finding archival materials, Mo Reznor for his film of the final game at the Polo Grounds, The End of an Era, Skylar Swordak for consulting, Ben Eagle and Gabriel Baumgartner for helping with the launch, and Groundswell for their help with the mural part of the story. Here's Groundswell's executive director, Robin Walker-Murphy.
5: Groundswell is New York City's premier social justice arts Um, organizations. So we believe that the mural making process is a transformative process because it brings together artists, youth, and community to transform like blank walls um, into these pieces that create these dynamic dialogues and that it gives youth the opportunity to see themselves as agents of social change. They can reach us at (laughs) www.groundswell.nyc
6: If you want to see some of the objects mentioned in this episode, or hear a story from Johnny Antonelli that was too good to hit the cutting room floor, head over to on.si.com nygiants. If you like the cast, remember to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Each review bumps us up the list to put us in front of more people. Or better yet, just tell a friend to give us a listen. You can tweet about the show using the hashtag SINarrative. I'm at HarrySwordOut on Twitter. And as always, for more on the New York baseball giants and all narratives moving the world of sport, log on to SI.com.